We've been talking about living life in the Spirit, and this morning, hmm, it sank. Can you see me? <laughs> okay. <laughs> this morning, um, I want to take a look at the law in the life of a believer, because Spirit-filled living is living free from the law and free in Christ in a dynamic relationship. This is not new to you, but um, as you are well aware, the three R's of good teaching are repeat, repeat, repeat. And it's amazing uh, how the enemy snatches the truth away from us particularly when it's something that is so deeply ingrained in our normal way of thinking. If you talk to most people, uh, they believe that the essence of Christianity is following the teachings of Christ uh, to obey and believe and follow the kinds of things that he told us to do and so on and so forth. Even um, as far as this recent week, I heard one of those uh, cliches that was intended to be spoken as a truism, uh, that the Lord helps those who help themselves. That is the antithesis of the gospel. Those who help themselves and think it's going to get them anywhere, in fact, um, are excluding themselves from the grace and the power of God. Because God helps the helpless. He doesn't help the people that think they can make it on their own. And so, understanding the freedom that Christ has purchased for us, and then empowered us uh, to enjoy by the filling of the Holy Spirit, is something that is just not normative to the human way of thinking. And even in... Christianity and in variety of churches, no matter what denomination they are, the concept is that the more I can keep the rules, the better Christian I am becoming. And we feel like this is, this is what is expected uh, of us. Uh, before we can understand, however, freedom, because I, I want to mention at the outset, there, there are two extremes that people can uh, derive from the teachings of Scripture. One of them is libertinism. If you listen to the message I'm about to bring this morning and the one next week, because you can't put this all together in one sermon. There's a tendency for some people to think in terms of libertinism. I can do anything I want to do, and it will be okay. Uh, 
Many years ago, I was in a, uh, a high school uh, Bible club that we had started, and it was led by uh, a fellow from a fairly well-known Bible college in the Florida area. And the president of that college was accused of... Um, being sexually involved with uh, many of the female students. It turned out that that was true. And when he was confronted with that, his answer was, I cannot sin. This is not sin. A Christian cannot sin. And they asked him on what did he base that, and he quoted to them from 1 John, the one who is begotten does, of God does not sin, neither can he sin, because he is begotten of God. And he said, there is my proof that nothing I do is sinful as a Christian. And he justified his uh, immorality on the basis that he was exempt from law. That is not what I'm telling you. <laughs> and that is not what the scripture teaches. And there is a correct understanding and exegesis of that passage in 1 John. And it does not mean you can do as you please. Uh, it means that there, <laughs> just the opposite, in fact, that there are some, th there are certain things you won't do because you're begotten of God, uh, because the Holy Spirit is living in you, and so uh, that's a, that's a whole different story. But libertinism is one extreme of freedom from law. On the other extreme is legalism. And legalism is the idea that my Christian life is rated, gauged in spirituality by how well I keep the rules, how well I keep the law. And as a consequence of that, um, an awful lot of judgmentalism and uh, looking down on one another and being critical of one another arises because we can see people all around us who, from our perspective, are violating the laws of God. The problem is that in most churches, they come up with their own set of rules. I grew up a Southern Baptist, and we had a set of rules. And when I was first licensed in the Christian Missionary Alliance, and filled out my application, I had to sign a document. And that document uh, stated that I was in agreement that I did not dance, I did not play cards, I did not use alcohol, I did not use tobacco, etc. That these were things that holy people did not do. And so, uh, at that particular point in time, I didn't do those things. Couldn't afford to go to the movies. <laughs> didn't have time to play cards. And I had never uh, had a problem with alcohol, tobacco, or whatever. So it was easy for me to sign it. 
But I have always been frustrated by the fact, and it's changed quite a bit today, incidentally, but I've always been frustrated by the fact that we have based holiness on performance to rules that cannot be supported by Scripture. And that's legalism. Among other things, legalism includes rules that are supported by Scripture, but it also includes rules that are not. Um, when we were at Tacoma Falls College, if a young lady was considered to be wearing too short a skirt, she had to go to the dean of women's office and kneel down on the floor, and they put a tape measure against the floor, and if her hem was more than two inches off the floor... Uh, she had to go change because her dress was too short. And I, I can't find that anywhere in the Bible, the two-inch rule. I just, you know, it's just not there. And uh, there were all kinds of things of that nature. Um, anyway, I could tell you stories all day, and I won't. But, but these are the, the extremes. Libertinism, legalism, God wants us to walk in the power of the Spirit, in the freedom wherewith Christ has set us free. And when we live by the Spirit, we reflect Jesus Christ. That's just natural. And so, um, I want to address a couple of questions this morning. Why did God give the law? What is the purpose of the law? Why was it ever given? And according to Professor Douglas Moo, a New Testament scholar, God gave the law for three reasons. One, to reveal His character to the people of Israel and demand that the people conform to it. One of the things that the law does is it reveals the character of God. And particularly if you read the Ten Commandments, which are the essence of all the laws, and you read those Ten Commandments, the first four deal with our uh, relationship to and respect for God. But... The next six deal with our relationship with one another, and they reflect God's nature. God says to keep the covenant of marriage and don't, and don't commit adultery because God keeps His covenants. God says don't steal because God does not steal. God says don't lie because it is impossible for God to lie. And if you look at the commandments, they all reflect the character of God. And whether you're a believer or a Jew or no one at all uh, in terms of faith, if you read the law, you will discover the character of God. This is His nature. This is what He's like. And He reveals that in terms of how we are to behave and to act. Secondly, he gave the law to supervise Israel in the time before Christ. 
God called out a people. He began with Abram and he called out a people through whom he would bless all the peoples of the world. And that people were intended to create the backdrop for the advent and the birth of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they were to be a peculiar people, a holy people, a separated people, a different kind of people from those in the world who were ungodly. And their lifestyle was to reflect the character of God so that when Jesus came, He would be the fulfillment of the law. Look at all the laws and all the rules and all the regulations and requirements, and then look at Jesus, and He was the fulfillment of all that is important within the law. And God wanted to prepare a people through whom He would bless the nations of the world in Christ. And then thirdly, it was to imprison Israel and by extension, all people under sin. I'm going to get to that in a little more detail in a moment. But the law came in order to expose our sinfulness. Before the law, we did not have a clear idea of what God's expectations were. But after the law came, it exposed our sinfulness. And it made a revelation to us that we have sinned and broken God's laws. Not just us, but everyone. Um, the law of God is written on the hearts of all people. And people have within themselves an awareness of the basics of what is right and wrong. You read Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 and into chapter 3, and you look at the description of both the pagans and the Jews, and Paul is explaining in Romans that we innately know what is right, and we disobey it. Because we're in bondage to sin. So, why did God give the law? He gave it to reveal Himself and to separate a people unto Himself who would prepare the way for Jesus Christ. What is the history of the law? Now, this is just in, in very brief, but... When God called Abraham out, there came a time when God brought Abraham to a crisis point. And he asked Abraham to trust him and to believe a covenant that God was making with him. And Abraham did that. He had come to a place in his walk with God that he had discovered God to be trustworthy and reliable and he put his faith in God. He trusted him 
to keep his promises, to care for him, and to fulfill his word that he had made to him. And so Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Therefore, the New Testament refers to Abraham as the father of the faithful, of those who have faith. Abraham is the forerunner of a life lived by faith. And Abraham's commitment to God by faith came 430 years before the law was given. This is important for us to to get hold of because Paul makes a big deal of it in Romans chapter 4 and chapter 5 as he explains to us that if you want to make an argument about the law, you must recognize that 430 years before God gave the law, he made a covenant with Abraham on the basis of faith. And faith is a precursor to our faith and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's important for us to understand that. That faith predates the law. And believing God and trusting Him predates specific obedience to the rules He has given. Are are you with me there? Because that's important. It's important to... And read Romans 4. Read the whole chapter. Because it's important that we recognize that faith is the foundation upon which our relationship with God is based. Not the law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, but the faith that Abraham expressed in God. And so, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 verse 17 that the law came 430 years later. And as he goes on to explain... It was added because of our transgressions. The law came to reveal to us in specific terms the nature of God and how we violate it. It's very interesting to note that Sin entered the world through one man, Romans five twelve to 14, but where there is no law, sin is not imputed to our account. Nevertheless, its effect, death, was felt by all. Let's say that in the state of Illinois... Tomorrow, all the traffic laws were nullified. No more traffic laws. Kind of like the way people drive right now. There are no more traffic laws. Does it make sense to stop when two roads come together and look before you proceed? Does that make sense? Okay. 
if there are no traffic laws and you don't stop and you drive through the intersection and have an accident, can you be charged? No. There's no law against it. You could be killed, but you can't be charged. There's no law against it. If you drive 100 miles an hour on 290, can you get a speeding ticket? No. There's no law against it. Do you see the point? Where there is no law, (laughs) there is transgression, but there is no violation. There's no sin. You can't be charged. And so what Paul is pointing out in Romans 5 is, where there is no law, sin is not imputed. People may have a sense of what is right and wrong, but there is no charge to them when they violate it. They have not broken God's law because it didn't exist. Did they pay the consequence of being out of harmony with God? Yeah, they died. That was the proof. And the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay? And he goes on to say that the, 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 the transgression was not like the sin of Adam. And how, how is that so? God had given a specific law to Adam. Don't eat of that tree. You can eat of anything else in the garden, but don't eat of that tree. That's a specific rule. And Adam broke it. So he violated the law of God. But after that rule was broken, there was no more law given until Moses. And so, people continued to live evil lives and do terrible things, but they were not lawbreakers. They were just sinful people, full of iniquity. And so, God gave the law to bring us under the bondage of sin in plain terms so that when the law says you shall not lie or bear false witness try as you might you can't keep that rule don't steal from your neighbor Try as you might, you can't keep that rule. You say, wait a minute, I I have never taken anything from a store or from my neighbor or... Have you ever shown up 15 minutes late for an appointment? John Wesley has an interesting exposition of the Sermon on the Mount and the law. (laughs) And he says, when you show up late to an agreed 
time, you are stealing the other person's time and therefore part of their life. Have you ever thought of that? When you borrow something with permission and do not return it in a timely fashion, you are stealing the usefulness of that item from its rightful owner and they are doing without. You're robbing them. You see, there, there, are, <laughs> there are many ways that we can break the Ten Commandments without doing specifically what it looks like on the surface because we tend to do the seed of it in our heart. The Ten Commandments says, do not commit adultery. Jesus said, I tell you, men, if you look at a woman and lust after her, the seeds of adultery are in your heart. And before God, it's just as if you were an adulterer. Now, the consequences of living that out are much more dramatic. But as far as God is concerned, the adultery began with the thought. As far as God is concerned, other transgressions begin in the heart. Do not murder. Okay. Have you killed anyone? Well... Do you hate anyone? Are you furious with anyone? Is there a smoldering anger in your heart? What would you do if no one would ever find out what you had done? You see the point? Jesus said, murder lies in your heart. And it manifests when it has opportunity. Because it's there in your heart. That, that's, that's who we are. And so the, the law was given that it might expose this. And convince us that we have sinned against a holy God. There are three words that are frequently used for sin in the Old Testament, but they actually differ in shades of meaning. One of them is transgression. A transgression is any act which violates God's character, even if a person doesn't know it. If you violate the character of God, you have transgressed His character. You have broken His character. But sin is a violation of a specific law of God, rebellious disobedience, intentional or accidental violation of God's revealed law. Now we're tightening the noose closer and we're saying now God has revealed His character and He has told us what He is like and here's the rule. And if you break that rule, you have 
sinned against God. So sin is a is a transgression of the law of God, not just the implied character, but the specific law. Iniquity has to do with our sin nature. Why do we sin? Are we sinners because we sin? Or do we sin because we're sinners? And the scripture makes it plain that we sin because we're sinners. We have within us a natural rebellion to God. A sin nature that makes us people of iniquity who transgress and sin against the character and law of God because it's part of our inner nature. David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. And you have heard me say before, David was not referring to the um, sexual act as being sinful. God created sex and he said it's very, very good. So that was not the problem that he was addressing. What he was saying was, when he was born, he was a sinner. He inherited a nature. And in the midst of sinful humanity, my mother conceived me. Not because of what she did to conceive me, but because of who she was. And who my father was. And I inherited their nature. And so I was born in iniquity. And so David makes it plain that this is our natural uh, person apart from God. Now, there's a third thing that we want to talk about regarding the law of God. And I want to remind you this is all preparation for next week because you got you got to get all this in place so don't lose this sheet. <laughs> but you got to get this in place in order to understand how we are free from the law. But the Gentile perspective is that the law has three divisions. Now the reason I say that's the Gentile perspective is because a Jew would never think of the law in three parts. A Jew would look at all of the aspects of the law and simply call it the law of God. And for the Jew, the law is sacred and holy, and keeping it is how you love God. You love God by keeping the whole law. But we... Gentiles have divided it into three logical divisions. The moral law are rules pertaining to godly behavior. Don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, uh, etc. The moral law of God pertains to our behavior. In Leviticus 18.19, the Gospels and James 2.8 say, Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Any violation of that 
foundational principle is a violation of the moral law. But the ceremonial or Levitical law are rules pertaining to worship and religious duty. So, you have to take your firstborn lamb, the choicest one from your flock, without spot or blemish, and you have to take it to the priest and sacrifice it on the altar. Do you have to do that as a Christian? You do not. Because the ceremonial law has passed away and everything was fulfilled in Jesus. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So, the ceremonial law is the, the, the worship cultus, as they call it. It is the way that the nation of Israel expressed their worship in the tabernacle and in the temple. And there's no obligation to us, clearly, to keep that any longer because of Jesus. And thirdly, um, there is the dietary laws, rules pertaining to clean and unclean foods. Now, this had to do with the things that people could and couldn't eat, clean meat, unclean meat, um, and so forth. So, um, could the Jews eat pork? They could not. But you remember that uh, vision that Peter had on the rooftop in the book of Acts? I've given you the reference here, Acts ten thirteen to 15. Remember what he saw? He saw a sheet let, being let down out of heaven, interestingly enough, and it was filled with all kinds of unclean things, things that no Jew would ever eat, things that were abhorrent to a Jew. I mean, they were a terrible violation. Uh, they would be defiled. And Peter heard a voice saying, Peter, rise and eat. And he said, no. And he fell back asleep, and then he had the vision again. And this sheet comes down out of heaven, here's all these unclean animals. And he hears the voice saying, Peter, rise and eat. And this time I think he recognizes it because he says, No, Lord, nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. I can't do that. And he hears the voice say, Do not call unclean what I have declared to be clean. And then right after that, a messenger from Cornelius' house shows up and he's invited to a Gentile home. A Jew would never go to a Gentile home and would never eat anything in that home if he found himself forced into it. He wouldn't eat anything. And Peter is told to go and share Jesus and eat what's set before him. And Paul carries on this same message that we are to eat what is set before us and receive it with gratitude. So, do the dietary laws of the Old Testament apply to believers? They do not. 
all of those dietary regulations have been removed. They no longer apply to us. And so it's very clear in the New Testament that we have been freed from the Levitical law and we have been freed from the dietary law. Now the question remains, have we been freed from the moral law? And that's really our topic for next week. And what does that mean and what does that look like and how does it express itself? We're going to be looking at Romans 14 in particular if you want to read ahead and uh, some other passages uh, as well. So, what is the point of the law? It is a tutor in Galatians 3.24 to bring us to Christ. The moral law of God is intended to expose our sin. It is intended to expose our sin. This is who God is. This is what He's like. Are you like that? Have you broken that rule? And remember that if a person has broken one of the laws, he has broken all of the laws. How many commandments are they? Are there? There's ten. So if you take a centimeter ruler and it's marked off in ten centimeters, if you break the seventh centimeter in half, have you broken the ruler? If you break the third one, have you broken the ruler? How many do you have to break to break the ruler? Just one. Anyone you break, breaks the ruler. What is God's standard? Be therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, some people say it's theoretically possible to be saved by the law. Well, it's, it is theoretically possible. All you have to do is somehow figure out how to get born without any sin nature. If you can figure that one out, then the next thing you have to do is live from the moment of your birth to the moment of your death without ever once thinking anything inappropriate, doing anything unlawful, behaving in any way that is ungodly, ever losing your temper, ever lusting after something, ever coveting something anyone else has, all you have to do is live your entire life perfectly. And, and you can be saved. But the whole point of the law is, it won't work. Because when we look at ourselves in that mirror, every one of us is shut up under sin. And we need to be rescued. We need a Savior. We need someone who's going to bail us out of our problem. And that person is Jesus Christ. The job of the law is complete when we recognize our sin and believe by faith that Jesus has freed us from its bondage. Freedom from the law 
from sin and from death. I want you to go home this week and think about that and give a prayer to it and ask in what way does this message apply to you? And if you find that you have been hoping for salvation by keeping the rules, that you've been hoping for heaven, have you ever heard someone say, I hope when I get there my good outweighs my bad? Remember the old omelet illustration from evangelism explosion we're going to make a 12 egg omelet and share it with our guest and we crack one of the eggs and it's rotten and bloody and yucky and we just stir it in what could it hurt who wants to eat the omelet God says, you can either be perfect, or you can trust Jesus. But if you think law is going to save you, you're in big trouble. You need a Savior, because we've all broken the law. Ron, would you come lead us, please?